Isaiah chapter 9, I want to begin reading in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a Savior is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your revelation and your word. We thank you that we get to celebrate formally the birth of the Savior today as a family. We pray that you'd accomplish every purpose that you have for these verses in our lives. Thank you that you thought of everything. Thank you that we're still discovering how you thought of everything and how we will learn from all eternity the vast riches of your grace extended to us. We worship you. We thank you for how great you are. We yield our hearts to you, Father. Anything that you want to say to us, speak to your servants. We're listening. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Christmas is a time where commercialism and so many other messages can be drowning out, so to speak, or being loud in our minds and our hearts and can kind of crowd out many times the true meaning of Christmas. We hear that a lot. I think that was uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas is about the true meaning of Christmas, and they give the true meaning of Christmas. I'm surprised they still show that on TV. It's like, what? We, we didn't know the gospel was in here. We, we, we can't have that. that you know, we have to lift up some other crazy philosophy. We can't have the, the gospel in, in there, but it's still there. A little Linus going off with the gospel there with this blanket. And uh, so we hear all these messages and these voices of what Christmas is about. We think about what, what gifts we're going to be given, what gifts we're going to be giving, Usually that's what we're supposed to be thinking of supremely is what gifts we're going to be giving, not what we're going to be getting. And you, you learn that more and more as, the, as you get older. We can also think of spending time with our family and all that goes with that. And there can be a lot of drama that can exist. And oh boy, Uncle Harold with his crazy you know, thoughts of aliens and blood moons and all this crazy stuff going on. And I have to hear that. And they're probably thinking the same thing about us got to hear about the all this stuff about Jesus and and all these things and they're having to endure us and so forth uh, but that can be something that we're thinking of also we can be thinking about uh, you know the extra time off that we have or you know just a special project that we're able to get to because we have a little bit of extra time or something like that I don't know if who uses you know time off for projects it's not me unfortunately my wife would wish that I did a little bit more projects with free time, but uh, that doesn't happen too often because I don't know how to do a project. I don't know how to fix something or, or make something better. It seems like I break things more and more. But um, And then there's Santa, you know, and there's, there's uh, Christmas carols, and there's, you know, um, just everything that around the tradition, all the things that can kind of, you know, get in the way. You know, Santa, uh, we didn't tell our kids that Santa was real. Um, we didn't want to tell them that, you know, it wasn't true eventually and so forth. And um, I'm kind of looking more and more like Santa <laughs> as I get older, unfortunately. Uh, and some of you are, too, by the way. Um, you're liking milk and cookies more and more. That's what I meant. What did you think? Uh, but, you know, it, 
we have all these things. We have Star Wars coming out here. The worship leader's trying to get me to do a Yoda impression. You know, that's encroaching upon the spirit of Christmas and church and so forth. And, and, you know, all these things can distract us. But Jesus being given to us, saving, coming to save mankind, our greatest need is that we needed salvation. We needed saving. We needed forgiveness. That's what we need to say as we go out within the Love, Inc. ministry and share with people what God's provided for us to give to them related to clothing and other things, the greatest thing that we need to say to them is their greatest need is salvation, if they don't have salvation already. That's our greatest need. So God in human flesh came in humility so everybody could relate to him. There's nobody that can't relate to him that's poor. And most of the world is poor. The most of the world has always been poor. And we live in such an affluent society and we have all these things, but most of the world's poor and most of the world has always been poor. And he made sure that no matter who we're looking at his life, they'd be able to say, I can relate to that. He came in humility. Where he was born was hardly placed for a king, but fitting for one who didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So today, as we celebrate Christmas together as a church, I wanted to have us look at Christmas in the Old Testament, because it's there. A prophecy that was given to Isaiah the prophet 740 years before the events that it's speaking about in these verses, before the birth of Christ, Jesus came. He came. And the context of our verses here, I don't know if you've ever studied Isaiah. It's a very long book. There's a lot of themes in Isaiah. There's a lot of things that he deals with and speaks to and God reveals by the Holy Spirit. But the context is at this point, Israel is in rebellion to God. Israel has turned away from God. And God was about to use the Assyrians who are very, at that time, very savage people. They were notorious and infamous for how they would treat the people that they conquered. And, and so they would just white people out do horrific things they would torture people they were they do horrible horrible things so in 722 so this is about 740 so 18 years or so from this point he's going to use those Assyrians to come and judge the children of Israel and so in that sense Israel would cease in the sense that that they would be conquered and so Samaria, the area of northern Israel, because there were ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. So the northern tribes of Israel fell first in 722 by the Assyrians. And so they, that, that was God's discipline. That was God judging them for their rebellion. But the way the Assyrians would work is that they would displace people from a land into their land, and then they would take people from their land and put them in the land they just conquered, and they would mix them together so that there wouldn't be any more national identity or desire to reclaim the land and become a nation again, and that's what they did. That's where the Samaritans came from. Samaritans were, as they referred to them, as half-breeds, so forth. They were half-Hebrew, half-Assyrian, and so that's why later on in Israel's history, they were looked down upon. They weren't, they weren't considered pure, now, Jerusalem and Judea, that area, there would be a remnant that would come back to Israel after the Babylonian captivity, which happened between 601 and 586 B.C. There were three major campaigns that Nebuchadnezzar uh, waged 
uh, on, on the southern kingdom there, finally conquered completely in 586, and then they were in captivity for 70 years, and then they were led back under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and so forth, and, and so there would be a remnant there uh, in the southern kingdom, but this northern kingdom would never return. So this northern kingdom was engaged in sexual sin and idolatry, other expressions of immorality there that always comes from leaving our first love or leaving God and so forth. And so these chapters really are talking about God pronouncing his judgment. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment, God has something to say to them in regards to his love and the light he will be bringing into the darkness of their spiritual condition, especially in regards to their future, specifically 740 years in their future with the birth of the Savior. Look at verse 1, actually, in Isaiah chapter 9, and I'll read it, verse 1 and 2. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now, as you know, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. And in chapter 4, we read Matthew quoting these verses. And I want to read them again. In Matthew 4, verse 13 and following, it says this, And leaving Nazareth, he, that is Jesus, came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet. That's what we've been reading. It was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, be, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I believe that's why the, the Magi, when they came later, they saw this star. It was representing of light because the Messiah is light, and he's coming to bring light to the world. And so Isaiah prophesied about that. So yes, God was judging the northern part of Israel, the Syrians were cruel. They were going to suffer. All of that's true. But God always gives hope. In the face of all their wickedness, all their idolatry, God provided hope and a way of escape. And it's the same today. This world's a dark place. It's getting worse and worse. Things are getting more and more evil. People are losing heart more and more. Terrorism is coming so much stronger. I believe that's one of the ways that people are going to give up their liberties and give up their freedom that will eventually usher in a one-world government. You can't have a one-world government. You can't have all those things that the Antichrist is going to be engaged in without tremendous liberty and freedom being relinquished and given up. And I believe terrorism is one of the main catalysts that will cause people to be willing to do that. So it's getting darker and darker. But just like back in that time, even though judgment is coming, God has come in and given us the truth. 
60 million people who die in the world each year are going to face God's judgment or they're going to be assessed related to their spiritual condition. And Romans 9 or excuse me, Hebrews 9 verse 27 reveals that it's appointed once for a man to die, then comes the judgment. But more than that, there's going to be a worldwide judgment that comes in, on this earth. We went all through that when we went through the book of Revelation verse by verse. And you can go through that on our website. You can go through and start in chapter 1 and go all the way through verse by verse and see what's coming in our future. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation. 25% of the world's population is going to be dead or only, or rather only survive by the end of the seven-year tribulation. So 75% of the world's population, which is about 5.5 billion people, are going to be dead by the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's going to be an expression of God's judgment on this earth. But just like this prophecy, again, like our verses today, in the context of all of that future judgment that's coming, God still provides hope and a way of escape today. Even though he's prophesied all this judgment, just like in Israel at that time, he prophesied all this judgment, he still provides hope and he still provides a way of escape And so God has provided the meaning of of Christmas for us to understand. And it's it's free for us to understand all the other, you know, 364 days of the year where we have the gospel being preached out there and the answer to our sin problem and our lack of purpose problem and our where we're going to be after we die problem and how do I have control over my sin and the addictions that I have problem all those things are available the solution is available to us every other day not just today and the message of salvation with jesus coming so god has provided a savior there's no other savior like him and and he wants that message to be on the tip of our tongue he wants us that message to be proclaimed from our lips from our mouths from our lives he wants our lives to be a demonstration of a different kind of life so people have a thirst and they see there's a different kind of way to live than what I've been living because people don't understand that there's a supernatural life that we all can live and God wants to use us and and so that's the message that we carry we should be communicating the message of Christmas every day that Jesus came to die and that we need to tell people this is very important listen to this We need to tell people, and I tell those people many times when I'm trying to help them with some need in their life. I try to tell them that your greatest need is not this, whatever it is. Your greatest need is forgiveness. Your greatest need is to have peace with God. We're going to be talking about the Prince of Peace here coming up. But your greatest need is to have peace with God. You can never have the peace of God until you've had the peace that you need with God. And you have to come his way, the way that he has prescribed. So now let's look at this amazing description. Again, 740 years before the birth of Christ. If you're here and you're a skeptic and you want evidence that the Bible is true and God's word is true, he laid all of this out hundreds and hundreds of years before the Messiah came. And there's many other prophecies besides this one. So he says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The first thing I want to highlight in verse 6 is the two words, unto us. So how would the Jews receive this? If they're receiving this revelation from Isaiah the prophet, who is the unto us that they would, they would think of? They would think, oh, us, the Jews, the children of Israel, these ten tribes here, and even the, those that were in the southern kingdom would think that this is to us, to us, to us. All through the Old Testament, though, we see that God's heart was for the whole world. And he tells them over and over again that I want to be a light to the Gentiles. I want your lives to be so different that it affects all those that are around you because I love them as much as I love you. Perfect picture of the Christian life, right? We are believers. We are distinct. He wants our lives to be distinct. We live a different kind of life than other people out there live. We shouldn't, people shouldn't look at us and say they're just like the world. They're just like everybody else. They should see a difference in our lives, not something weird and sandwich signs and, you know, craziness and, you know, all the misrepresentations that we see, but the character of Christ coming through our lives, the, 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 the uh, fruit of the Spirit coming from our lives. So the Jews had it wrong. Yes, it was to them, but it was also to everybody that would receive this salvation. Romans talks about that he has provided the Gentiles in part to provoke jealousy in the Jews because we get to enjoy freely what was intended for them first. God always presented the gospel to the Jews first, then the Gentile, but he has grafted us in and it's a beautiful thing. These Jews back then were stumbled by the Messiah not being how they expected him to be. They thought he was going to be, because of mainly one of the reasons, because in verse 7, I mean, how he talks about being a ruler and so forth, that I would totally fall for it too. If I, just like them, if I hadn't read the rest of the verses, it talks about in Daniel where the Messiah would be cut off. How can the Messiah be cut off, but yet be, sit on David's throne and rule forever? Well, if he came twice, he could do it. And even some of them believed in two messiahs because they couldn't reconcile those suffering servant passages where the Messiah would suffer and be a servant and be cut off for his people, but also rule on David's throne forever. But it's interesting that today people are equally stumbled by the kind of Messiah that God has provided. People want a, a rabbit's foot Messiah. They want a lucky whatever. They want, a, they want just a, 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 a human-type philosopher that's wise, a good teacher, a prophet, an example. They want all those things, but they don't want someone that's going to say, the problem that you are having is you're a sinner. And because of that, and because I am perfect, because I am holy, I can't have a relationship with sin. So you have a sin problem that gets in the way of having a relationship with me that I've intended you to have. And because of that, you have to humble yourself, admit your need, admit that you can't save yourself, that you can never do enough religious good works to earn a relationship with me, and you need to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness and, and surrender my life, your life to me as I intended. That's not the Messiah this world wants. This world wants somebody that will be like, kind of like a glorified Tony Robbins or something where a, a motivational speaker guy that can just, okay, my life is still my own, 
but he's told me to do these success things, and then my life will be a success in terms of how I want my life to be. That's not the Messiah that God has provided. The Messiah that God's provided has the clear and distinct message that you're not, you're not needing help. You didn't, I didn't come to make good people better. I came to make dead people alive. You're spiritually dead. You have no relationship with me. Even though you believe in me, even though you may pray to me, you have no relationship because of the sin problem that you have. And that's why he sent Jesus, the meaning of Christmas, to come and die for you so that you can have forgiveness of sins and receive salvation as a free gift. It requires repentance. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe in the gospel. Some people get all offended. What? What? You can't tell people to repent. They just need to receive Jesus as their Savior, and then they're going to repent. No, Jesus said repent and believe in the gospel. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17 said he's called all men everywhere to repent. That's very important. We don't want to hear repentance. That's not the Savior we want. We want to continue living the life we've always lived, but just have success in the way that we've defined success. And God says that Messiah does not exist. And it's, hard, it's a hard thing to receive, but it's the truth. Now notice, unto us is mentioned twice in verse 6. Did you see that? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We are the recipients. We are the recipients of the most amazing gift that has ever been given. He didn't give it to angels. He didn't give the son to one singular person. He didn't give the son just to the Jews as we've gone over. He didn't give the son to the entire, I mean, he gave the son to the entire world, but it's for each individual to value and to receive and to appropriate individually, all of mankind. Those that live before his public ministry, those who live during his public ministry, and those who live subsequent to his public ministry, he died for them because they all have an equal need to be for, forgiven. All We all need forgiveness. We all have that in common and he knew that so we are the recipients unto us the whole world not just the jews not one person the whole world unto us this son is given we're also told that he would be born we see that in the verse as well and what does this communicate it communicates that he would be human in addition to being divine he would become a man, but he, he, wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he would just add an additional nature to himself. He doesn't stop being God, he doesn't stop being divine. When he came to this earth, he just added an additional nature to himself, a human nature. A, not a sinful human nature, but a perfect human nature. That's who he is. And he had to do that because, he had, because we're human. He had to become a man. Those those sacrifices in the old testament all they did was roll their sins ahead one year to the next year to the next year the word atonement in the old testament means to cover just covered our sins you know when you're growing up and you're at least as a boy and you're starting to have a little bit of odors going on you know and and you you think that you're going to fool your parents maybe i'm speaking just from experience i don't know but you're going to fool your parents by just putting some deodorant over the stank or whatever it is you know and it doesn't work it's like this quasi just right guard funk you know it's just it's horrible you know it's not 
It's better to take it, that smell, out of the way completely. That's the New Testament definition of atonement. Remove out of the way. Old Testament is to cover. New Testament is to remove completely out of the way. And so he needed to be a human in order to do that. We're also told in verse 6 that he would be a son. Not just any son. The son. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry. Some people say there's no mention of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Jews, you know, they love to say that. I'm like, man, Isaiah 9, 6 is right there. We have Psalm 2. There's plenty of examples of that. But he is the son. There's only one son of God. He would be born. He would be human. But he wouldn't only be human. He would be the divine and is the divine son of God, or better said, God the son. A son is given he would be born and he would be a son that means that someone was his father now not the offspring of the father they're co-equal but a beloved son of God and on his baptism he said this is my son in whom I will please he said it from the mountain there on the mountain transfiguration it cost the father something to give his son you know the more costly a gift especially when we're talking about Christmas you know how much it affects you when you buy something for somebody or you do something for someone that costs you a lot when they don't receive it well or they don't appreciate it. It hurts you. We never think of God's side of things related to people receiving his son that he sacrificed, that he gave up. It hurts when people don't receive his son. When they have the opportunity to do it and they reject him, it hurts him because it's a loving father giving up the son. Notice also in verse 6, says this divine son is given and that means that nobody could earn it no one did earn it no one deserved it you know the the messianic jews today the jews that have come to know christ they have to be very careful with their heritage to not believe that it was their heritage or anything in their past related to their ancestors that merited or deserved the messiah to come because it was the fact that he chose the the jews in the first place was just a pure expression of grace And I love the fact in the Old Testament, it shows that pattern of them serving God, then serving idols, being disciplined by God, crying out to God and repenting. God takes them back. They serve him for a while. It's almost like the Christian life. (laughs) You know, it's like it's a perfect picture. And so there's all the dirty laundry in the Old Testament. There's all the dirty laundry in the New Testament. And then we get to live out our dirty laundry knowing that we're imperfect and flawed and so forth. But we couldn't have earned it. We couldn't have deserved it. The world didn't have it coming to them. That Jesus came. They couldn't have deserved that. They could, no, none of us are worthy of Jesus coming, especially the way that he came. We never would have even dreamt or even thought up that God would even want to save us the way that he did, that the Son would even come, that he would come himself. Try to think of something better than that, more supreme than that, higher than that, more preeminent than that. You can't think that up. We can't think it up a better way, a more sacrificial way, a more loving way to save mankind than how God did it. So it's a perfect expression of love extended to mankind in the form of this undeserved gift of Christ. Do we believe that Christ has been given to us as a gift? We think salvation is a gift, and it is. But do we think about Jesus being a gift to us? That gift was wrapped in in swaddling cloths. A gift was born in a, in a stable, was put in a feeding trough. 
It was not worthy of a king at all. He could have come any way that he wanted to come. He chose to come that way to show his humility and show his heart for people and to identify with people. But we didn't deserve it. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, that word demonstrates, is, we always quote it as demonstrated, past tense. It doesn't say that. It says demonstrates, present tense. His love is continuously dem- being demonstrated to us by the fact that he sent his son to us when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't, it wasn't owed to us, that we weren't looking for it, we weren't asking for it. He just did the most amazing expression of love towards us when we had no idea that we even needed it, he did it. We never would have dreamed that he would have done that. But the verse also speaks of these verses here, especially uh, verse 7, speaks of his destiny. And this is where the Jews got this wrong because they were assuming that when he came the first time, he was going to fulfill all these prophecies related to his government and, and ruling on the throne of David and so forth. But it, but it speaks to his rule, his reign, that he's king of kings and lord of lords. Notice we're also told that the government will be upon his shoulder. The scepter of a king would always lean on the shoulder of the king. And it would, it would, it would be an outward expression that he's in control of that kingdom and he is ruling that kingdom and it, he can take the weight of the government of of that, of that reign on himself, that he has the capability and the proficiency to be able to do it. Isaiah would la- later tell us in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, this, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. Jesus claimed this for himself in the Revelation, you remember that when we went through Revelation chapter 3, the church of Philadelphia, he said this, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, who is he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. He's quoting from this part of Isaiah in chapter 22. So he's saying, I have authority. I have absolute rule and I have absolute authority. And related to our lives and we talk about ministry opportunities, we talk about all these opportunities before us, God will open the door and no one can shut it. If that's the door we're supposed to go through, we can't even shut it. And we want to. Sometimes we want to shut that ministry door. No, I don't want to do that. No, no, you're no man. You qualify. You're not shutting that door. If he wants you to go through that door, you're going to go through that door. And, And the doors that are shut, we want to open sometimes. Let me in. Let me. Th- this is the plan that I want for my life. Tony Robbins said so. You know, all the human teachers say so. I'm supposed to be doing this. And it got, no, that's not what I have for you. I have this open door, and let me open it for you. It reminds me of, um, let's make a deal. You know, and the thing is, we're not, we're, not, we're not trying to get the best, okay, God, you know, what, what do you want me to have instead of what do I want? I want, I don't want door number three. I don't want the the zonk or whatever it is the you know the uh the zebra mess thing that he had behind the 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 curtain that wasn't uh, what we would want we don't want that for our lives we want what he wants for our lives now verse 7 provides more detail for us look with look with me there isaiah 9 7 of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of david and over his kingdom 
to order it and establish it with justice or judgment rather and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the lord of hosts will perform this i love that last part but aren't you just can't wait for that day when he takes over i am so tired of man trying to rule himself because we do a horrible job at it we think oh you know if i were in charge <laughs> yeah things would be different around here you'd probably mess it up too just like i would we don't have the capacity to rule over ourselves. God didn't want Saul to be the king. That was the people's choice. People's choice award goes to Saul. You know, they wanted a monarchy. God wanted to be it to be a theocracy. He wanted it to be how it always had been, where God ruled them directly, not uh, have a monarchy, not have a king. Can't wait for that day. Now we get to his name in verse 6. We go back to verse 6 says his name, and it's singular. It's singular in Hebrew. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua, which means uh, Jehovah is salvation. But he's talking even more than that. He's talking about his character. When someone says, you know, that man has a good name, what are we saying? Like, we're impressed with John? You know, like, wow, that John, that's such a great name. No, it's his character. It's his, his word is his bond, his character, his, what he says he'll do. And that's kind of the idea here. It goes way beyond just a name. But some of these here, we'll go over here. Wonderful counselor. And I like to put him together. It doesn't matter. He's just as wonderful by himself as he is as a wonderful counselor. It's all the same. But everything about him is wonderful. His coming, how he came how he healed people, how he was there for people, how he raised the dead, how he took children and, and loved them and blessed them, how he provided for the, the poor, how he's our high priest, how he's going to snatch us away someday in the rapture, how he's going to come back during a second coming. Everything about him is judgment, his wisdom, his Holy Spirit. Everything about him is wonderful, but he's also a very distinct counselor. And what will help us is understanding he's not merely talking about a counselor like when you go, when you have problems and you go see a counselor. It's more the idea of an attorney. Now, we usually don't put the words wonderful attorney together. Okay, if you're an attorney here, God bless you. You know, I'm sure you're wonderful. But God's grace, just like all of us. Uh, but you charge a lot. Uh, anyway, so it's... You know, when you, sometimes you hear attorneys referred to as counselor. The judge usually says to the attorney, counselor, you know, and, and so it's, it's synonymous with that. But just think of your case. Well, let's think of my case, the case that I had before I came to know Christ. And he, you know, what Jesus did for me. I mean, normally when somebody today, a, a, an attorney is considered a, a wonderful attorney if he can get the innocent off the hook. But with Jesus, any case he's ever had has been taking, making the guilty off the hook because of what he did for them and for us. That's a wonderful counselor. But he took my file, it was pretty thick, you know, pretty thick, don't nod your head at me. Uh, you know, yours is thick too, your file, your sin file. And he opened it up and anything I ever did was in there in detail. Every idle word, every sin, every evil thought, even the things that I wanted to say that I didn't say, uh, but I still had in my heart, every imagination, every thought that was unbiblical. Um, why are you looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're, you're right there with me. Don't raise your hand, but you know, you'd be honest with yourself. You're just like me. But he took all of that out of my file and he put it in his own. 
the file of the wonderful counselor. He put my file in his own. He put a single clean sheet on his letterhead that says righteous and put it in his file. And so I'm in Christ Jesus. I'm 100% righteous and holy before him positionally. Practically, it's a whole other thing. I'm growing. We're growing. But he has given us a standing before him, a legal standing of complete 100% righteous. And he signed it, and it's sealed in his blood. That's amazing. That is a wonderful counselor. That's an amazing attorney. And he's done it for us, and he wants to do it for more people, too, those that we have an opportunity to reach through sharing our faith. He's also noticed, uh, noted or revealed as mighty God. People say, where does it say that Jesus is God or the Messiah would be God in the Old Testament? There you have it, in Isaiah 9, 6. He is the mighty God. Remember, there's no other, the Ten Commandments, you have, shall have no other gods besides me. They were a mono theistic uh, religion they're Jews so to say that he and this really just drives the Jehovah's Witnesses crazy because what you say is you say well there's almighty God and then there's false gods you agree yeah well Jesus is referred to as a mighty God which one is he? is he the one true God or is he a false God um, there's a third category and that's the Messiah, and so he's the mighty God. Well, he has to either be the one true God or a false God, which is, and they don't like that, but it's the case. The fact is, it reveals that he is God. He is the mighty God. He is all-powerful. He has all the power I would ever need as, as a believer in him. He, he is not lacking any power that I need for any situation in my life. But also, it says, everlasting Father. And on the surface, that could be a little bit deceptive. And people that deny the Trinity, that believe in what's called modalism, which means that the Father turns into the Son and the Son turns into the Holy Spirit, and it's the same person that's putting on different masks. That's what the United Pentecostal Church believes and apostolic churches believe. They deny the Trinity. They believe in modalism. They say, this is one of their verses. See, Jesus is called the Father. This is talking about, it literally means the Father of eternity. The Father of eternity. He's sovereign over time and eternity. That's what it's saying there. So he's not only a wonderful counselor, he's not only mighty God, but he's the source and he's in control of all of eternity and all that happens within that realm and within it, even time and space himself, itself. He's in control over it. He's sovereign over it. And so we saw our need for being right with him because those implications of not being right with him would last for all eternity. That's part of the gospel that we preach. We can't leave out the bad news. We have to be faithful to give them the bad news if they're ever going to appreciate the good news. So we have to be honest with them that there's, I always have this outline, plan, problem, solution, do you want it? Plan. God loves the world. He wants to have a personal relationship with you, but there's a problem. You're a sinner. You've been less than perfect. You've fallen short of that standard of perfection we all have, and thus you need forgiveness. But God, there's a solution. He didn't leave us in that condition. He sent Jesus to die on the cross, the purpose of Christmas, so that we could have a relationship with him, but we have to appropriate it. We have to receive it. Do you want that? Don't be afraid to ask people, do you want to pray right now to receive Christ? You'll be shocked at the answer that you get sometimes. You think they're always going to say no, but believe me, they say yes a lot. If you've definitely described the gospel the way that it's laid out 
in Scripture. So he's the father of eternity, but also he's the prince of peace, as I mentioned earlier. He has given peace between us and him. And again, you can't have the peace of God until you first have peace with God. And this world is trying so hard to have the peace of God without first coming his way and having peace with him. You know, sometimes we say it this way, you need to make your peace with your maker or make peace with God. At the end of, I've led many people to Christ on their deathbed and, and they need to make peace with God. That's what we say. You need to do that. But the, only then can you have p- the peace of God. Romans 5.1, very famous scripture. Therefore, having been justified or acquitted, that's what it means, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a progression where we will receive God's peace. The first is peace with God, then the peace of God, and then someday physically when we're in his presence, we have our new bodies and we're in heaven, we'll experience the government of peace that he promises to, for us to, to enjoy. So right now, he is offering every person in this world an opportunity to receive that uh, um, amazing chance to have peace, supernatural peace with him. Now, the question in all these things, if we went through his kind of, his names and so forth, and it's really not his names, but it's what he's called. And that's what I want to get to. See, the real question is, do we know him personally to be these things? See, I'll phrase it another way. Have you ever experienced personally these attributes? There's a reason in verse 6 why it reveals his name will be called. It's something, those things people are calling him. I don't know if you caught that. These titles are not expressed by him about himself. He's really talking about how he's called certain things and that people ascribe to him because of what they've experienced from him. He'll be called those things because they experience those things of him in their lives. They experience a specific side of, of him or a part of his character, and they say, he's a wonderful counselor because I receive wonderful counsel. He's a mighty God because he demonstrated his divine power in my life. He's the father of eternity because he has secured my eternal state and, and put eternity in my heart and allowed me to live with an eternal perspective. He's the prince of peace because I finally have peace with him and from him. So that's why he's called those things. is because people experience those things from who he is. And that's the part that we can miss as believers, even walking with him for a long time. So I want to ask the question, I exhort myself. Is Jesus your wonderful counselor? Are you obeying his counsel? Are you obeying what he says for you to do? Am I picking and choosing which counsel of his I will obey? Partial obedience is disobedience. And, and it's, it's hard for us to take that, but it's true. And so we have to recognize if he's wonderful counselor, then all his counsel has to be wonderful. And if I pick and choose, what I'm saying to him is, there's parts of your counsel that aren't wonderful. They're not true. They're not worthy of obeying. And that's, that's the irrationale that we can have when we think about obeying him versus not obeying him. Is there something that he has made clear to you related to his will or your behavior that you're not heeding, you're not obeying? Because his counsel is never wrong. 
He's never off the mark. He's never going to say to us, you know, I thought I was right when I told you to do this, but it didn't turn out so well. Sorry. He doesn't do that. He's never done that. He's never said my counsel was off a little bit. I've said that before. Trust me. I've said my counsel was off a little bit. Sorry. He's never said that ever, and he will never say it. We never know better than him in any of our situations, and we have to allow him to counsel us even in the things that we don't want to hear but we need to hear. Don't we do that with our kids? We tell them if we're good parents, we tell them what they need to hear regardless of if they want to hear it or not. We tell them because we love them. We have that responsibility to tell them the truth. Well, he does the same with us. Related to being a mighty God, am I doubting his power? He is mighty, whether we believe him to be mighty or not. He's mighty. Is there a situation in my life in which I have allowed this situation in my mind to portray itself to be more powerful than him? We're saying he's not a mighty God then. We can't say to him, you are mighty God, if we don't allow his power to function in our lives and through our lives and on our behalf. He wants that. He wants us to have that testimony that my God's powerful. He's come to my, he's come to my rescue. He's answered my prayers. He's, he's uh, ministered to me when I needed him to minister to me. He's powerful. I call him mighty God because I've experienced a powerful God in my life. That's what he wants. Everlasting Father, Father of eternity. The question is, am I allowing him to shape my perspective into an eternal one? Is eternity very important to me related to souls? Does it bother me that people are going to hell around me? Does it bother me that people aren't saved? Does it ever wake me up at night? Does it ever move me to pray for unbelievers? Have I completely lost sight of the fact that he's concerned about people's eternal destination way more than what their approval is of me and what they think of me. I've been called to be a witness and I'm, on, I'm called to be on the witness stand and to tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to people even if they reject me as a result of it. Are we holding on to some friends that we, if they knew what we really believed about the gospel and believing what their condition was, they would disown us and we have this relationship that really shouldn't be going in the way that it's going anymore because of where our stance is and what we have to say to them but we've held back because we don't have that perspective that eternal perspective lastly prince of peace am i allowing his peace to rule my life colossians chapter 3 verse 15 very famous verse on god's peace says and let the peace of god rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful that word rule there in verse 15 is the word from which we get our word umpire. It means let the peace of God make the call in our lives. Not our own wisdom, not the world's wisdom, not the world's counsel for sure, but God's counsel, God's word, his Holy Spirit. Let that peace rule in our hearts and direct us. Are you led by your peace that God gives? Don't ever go against your peace in any decision. If you've lost your peace, you've gone off track. We're supposed to always be walking in God's peace. And when we get off track, we lose our peace, his peace, and we go back to where we were. And that's very important related to seeking his will. And then the famous scripture we all know, most of us know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. 
Sometimes we don't have the peace of God because we are not bringing things to him and bringing our anxieties and our worries to him and casting those cares upon him because he cares for us. And thus we don't have that supernatural peace and he wants that for us. He's the prince of peace. He's going to bring peace to this world eventually. He's going to bring peace. But way before that, he wants to bring peace in our lives in an ongoing way, even in ways that we haven't even imagined yet. But we have to let him do it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for bringing Jesus. We thank you that he's all these things. Help us, Father, to walk in these truths and to let him be all these things in our lives in an increasing way. Lord, I pray that none of us would be content with the amount that we have experienced of our Savior, that we would want more of him, and we would walk in the things of him even more. Lord, we want to celebrate the birth of your Son every single day by honoring you with our lives, being obedient to you. And I pray, Father, as we end this year, we begin another year, that 2016 would be a year of great change and great maturity and big uh, um, leaps of growth in our lives. And that we would, a year from now, be so amazed at what you did in our lives because we yielded our hearts to you completely. We pray that you would help us to help one another, to exhort one another, and to use spiritual gifts and all the things that you've intended for us to use to help one another grow. I pray that you would protect our body, Lord, from isolation. Help us to not isolate away from your body. We know, Lord, that the enemy uses that to to wreak havoc in our lives. Help us to grow closer together, to be faithful to being among one another, Lord, and being with each other. We pray, Lord, that you would use us greatly in our lives. We can't wait to see what you're going to do in 2016. We hope that you come. So we ask, Lord, that you would use these verses for those purposes. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.